from the book of Matthew. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Gospel of the Lord. Let me pray uh, as we uh, look into God's word. Our Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning and uh, there's many things that uh, compete uh, for our attention and for our loyalties. And Lord, we ask that uh, as we look into your word, um, that it would, uh, would point us to your son, point us to Jesus. Um, we ask that uh, you'd speak to our hearts, um, show us um, where, uh, where we need you, um, show us where we need to change our ways, show us, um, show us more of you. We, Ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be looking at our gospel reading on page 8 of your service sheet. Um, you can follow along there. Uh, this, this reading is a series of parables about the kingdom of heaven. It's actually uh, five short parables out of a series of eight. And Jesus uh, shares these right at a key moment in his life. He is shifting the focus of his teaching at this time uh, away from primarily debating with and confronting Israel's religious leaders. And he's shifting towards explaining his mission to people who are a bit more receptive to his message, to his disciples, um, which are people who have committed to follow him and also to uh, the Gentiles, uh, who is basically anyone who's not part of the people of Israel. And so as, as we look at these parables, I have three questions that I hope to answer. The first is, uh, why is Jesus speaking in parables? The second is, what is uh, the kingdom of heaven that he is talking so much about? And the third is, how do these parables challenge the way we currently live our lives? So first off, why is Jesus speaking in parables? In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us over and over again, through many parables, what the kingdom of heaven is like. But this word parable 
along with the word kingdom, uh, can get lost in us. Because for many of us, uh, it's just not part of our vocabulary. It's not really part of our world. For many of us, parables are not very efficient at communicating things. We live in a culture, uh, and we live in a city that is all about efficiency. We like our facts, and we like our data. Uh, we read reports at work, or we debate who's the best basketball player based on statistics. Uh, we like it when you can cut to the small talk and get right to the point. We like sermons with three points. But uh, parables don't work that way. Uh, a parable is simply an imaginative retelling of some sort of truth, usually a spiritual truth that we have overlooked or that we consider unimportant for our everyday lives. A parable uses common imagery and metaphors to communicate, but it also requires the listener to really focus on what's being said. And so a parable becomes either something that helps you grow, uh, in our case, to grow spiritually, or it causes you confusion and stops you where you're at. Now, we're some 2,000 years out from when Jesus spoke these words. So the images and metaphors Jesus uses may feel kind of foreign to us. Uh, we'll need to dig in a little bit more to try and track with Jesus here. But these words, uh, these parables, uh, even today, they still point us to something that is true about the nature of the world, of God, of how he works, and even about us. And parables challenge us. They challenge our understanding of the way things are and of what it means to follow Jesus, if that's what we've chosen to do. But often, uh, we don't really want to know or we pretend we don't know, because deep down, uh, we want to be the ones who determine our own path. We want to be in control. Maybe uh, you have a certain career path that you're on, or you have a certain idea of what your family should be like, or if you even choose to have a family. You want a certain level of income, uh, or you want to be a part of a particular social circle or a group of friends. Maybe you want just certain experiences before you die. Or maybe you just you want to deal out justice as you see fit. Well, these things will shape our friendships. Um, they shape where we live. They shape our political views. They shape our generosity. They shape our whole lives. But what I think we'll see in our passage this morning is that the kingdom of heaven functions much differently than how most of us structure our lives to find our way in the world. So a parable is a type of story that imaginatively engages our hearts to point us to some sort of spiritual truth. In Matthew 13, these parables are told in order to communicate to us what the kingdom of heaven is like. What do you think of when you think of a kingdom? I ask this uh, because kingdoms are another one of those things that I don't think many of us give much thought to on a daily basis, at least not here in the United States and not as it relates to our daily life. A kingdom, in the simplest terms, is make up, made up of three things. There is a king, there are people or subjects to that king, and there is a place. A kingdom consists of a king ruling over people in a specific location. 
And this is actually one of the ways that God is revealed to us throughout the Bible. And so uh, if we jump all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, we're going to go really quickly, a um, little bit of an overview. Uh, we, we see right at the very beginning, at the story of creation that we find in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, uh, the elements of a kingdom. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. Then he creates people and places them in a garden in the middle of the created world. We have right from the beginning these basic elements of a kingdom. We have a king, we have a place, and a people. We have God, the earth, and humanity. Later on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, uh, we find a word that we associate with kingdoms. Uh, let me read uh, 126 there. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Did you catch the word that's in there? It's dominion. As God creates people and places them in the rest of his creation, God makes us to be image bearers. We are made in the image of the king. We are tasked with this uh, kingdom sense of responsibility to exercise dominion over the creation, that is, to steward it, to care for it, to tend to it, to ensure the well-being of it so that it flourishes. We've been entrusted with the land and all that is in it. We are stewards of the king. So we have this sense of kingdom order where everything is properly related to each other. God to his people, people to each other, and people to the creation. But this doesn't last. We have what is commonly called the fall in Genesis 3, where sin disrupts this relational kingdom order. Disorder and dissension come to characterize existence. So Adam and Eve, the, the first humans God created, seek to live under their own rule and according to their own rules. They disobey God's commands and they hide from God in shame after being called out for it. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent who had deceived them, a, a curse is placed on the ground. Ultimately, they're put out of the garden and the kingdom is shattered. There, there's, there's this brokenness between God and people, between people and the land, um, between people and each other. And so it's in this state of brokenness that history unfolds. Yet throughout history, God still pursues his people and seeks to make things right. That is the whole story of the Bible leading up to the arrival of Jesus. God calls Abraham and he promises him land. He calls Moses and leads his people to a promised land. He establishes kings over his people in the promised land. Kings you may have heard of, uh, named Saul and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and a whole host of others. And there's a temple in which God's presence rests among his people right in the middle of the city of Jerusalem in the land. And so in the kingdom of Israel, where God's presence is with his people in a promised land, there's a glimpse of what things were meant to be and of what could be. But the kingdom of Israel is not the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. 
It's just a foreshadow, foreshadowing of the restoration of God's kingdom. And it's an imperfect one at that. This is because while some kings are better than others, uh, God's people still turn away from him over and over and over again. They scoff at his laws and, and seek to do their own thing. Eventually, things get so bad that God's people are exiled from the land promised to them. The empires of Assyria and Babylon occupy the land and scatter the people of Israel. But there emerge hints of a restored kingdom that people are hoping for, even as the kings leading God's people fail as leaders and empires rise up to oppress them. In the middle of the despair and the disillusionment of exile, there grows an expectation of a king that God will send to liberate his people, to bring peace and to bring healing, to make things right, to bring prosperity. And perhaps they think, well, we'll see God setting everything right again, right now. You know, evil will be dealt with. And one of the images of a restored kingdom that we have is actually found in the book of Ezekiel. If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can turn uh, to Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22. In Ezekiel chapter 17, we have what is described in verse 1 as a riddle and as a parable. It's a parable that predates Jesus by some hundreds of years, of which it seems, as we will see, Jesus was very familiar with. Ezekiel was a prophet who lived while the people of Israel were in exile. In his writings, uh, including in parables, uh, he expresses the hope of restoration. And he does it with this imagery of a tree. In chapter 17, verse 22 and following, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird, in the shade of its branches birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord." I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. The hope of a restored kingdom is expressed through the image of the planting of a sprig uh, or a twig or a small branch. I actually, I found one while I was setting up, a little, 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 little sprig. Um, the hope of restored kingdom is expressed through the planting of a sprig from a cedar tree that grows up so that every kind of bird will nest in it and take refuge. The beginning of Ezekiel 17 outlines how this cedar tree of which this sprig is broken off from symbolized the kingdom of Israel, which while it flourished for a while, withers, in, withers away under exile as a consequence returning away from the very God that waters and cares for it. This sprig, though, is replanted by God and flourishes to the point where all the nations of the world, symbolized by the birds nesting, find rest in a noble cedar tree. 
What we have here is the hope of a restored kingdom. But it is this expansive kingdom that, that actually seems to include other kingdoms, other nations. Well, hundreds of years pass after Ezekiel, and over those years, as exile under Babylon becomes exile under Persia, and eventually oppression under the Roman Empire, this hope begins to focus in on a person, a hoped-for savior who will finally restore the kingdom. And so in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, just as Jesus is beginning his mission, we're told, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is present, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus picks up directly on this image of a tree in Ezekiel. Only now, instead of a twig from a noble cedar tree, he uses the image of a tiny mustard seed. Here Jesus is resetting some expectations. Yes, the kingdom is here. God is present with his people in the land, but it's not coming about in the way that you think it would. And then Jesus piles on the parables. The kingdom is like leaven. It is not going to grow how you think it should. It is hidden treasure and valuable pearls. It's not as obvious as you'd expect. It's like a net. Yes, there will be judgment on evil and those who set themselves against God and are on the side of oppression, but it seems to be delayed as good and evil coexist for a little longer. Parables imaginatively retell truth that we overlook or consider unimportant in a way that confronts how we live our lives. These parables focus us on the kingdom of heaven being realized in Jesus. God coming to be with his people in the place he created for them, which will fix the brokenness that exists between God, humanity, and creation that resulted in death and decay, in violence and despair. But what does that mean for us now? Well, here's where we get into that third question of how does the kingdom of heaven function and how does that impact how I live my life? Our first parable, that of the mustard seed, gives the impression that the kingdom of heaven is all about life bursting through, uh, this flourishing of creation, uh, this harmony of people groups of every ethnicity, um, everyone included in all their wonderful diversity. But there's two things that, that throw us off. The first is that the kingdom starts out small, like a mustard seed. The second uh, is that peace and the justice that accompanies peace seem to be delayed. The kingdom of heaven, as expansive as it is, starts out small, as a baby in fact. And as this baby that we know as Jesus grows, and the weight of expectation of kingship and salvation and liberation is placed on him as he becomes an adult and announces that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, well, rather than mustering a massive show of military strength, he submits to his enemies and dies on a cross, though he was innocent of all their accusations. But he doesn't stay dead. Our great hope as Christians rests on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And in doing that, he repairs this relational brokenness between God and humanity. Death no longer has the final word 
and people can now draw near to God through Jesus. And we're able to relate to each other and to the rest of creation in the way we're supposed to, in a way that enables flourishing. Or at least for now, it bears witness to the flourishing of the world as it will be when all things are made new and right. When the tree has grown to its fullness. But that's not yet. Skipping over to the last parable in verses 47 to 50, we're told that the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind. The net is set out until it is full, and then the good fish and the bad fish are sorted. And we're told that this points to a judgment of good and evil, um, the evil facing the fiery furnace in the end. And so we find that we're in the middle of all this. The kingdom of heaven has broken into the world through Jesus, and it's breaking into the world now as Jesus draws people, draws you and I to himself, and into the arms of a loving and just God. Yet complete peace and restoration in its fullness lies in the future, when God sets everything right for eternity. And so in the meantime, following Jesus marks you as different than the way the world around us operates. We're, we're gathered today in what we often just refer to as church. But wherever the church is, um, that is where groups of believers are gathered around Jesus, seeking to be led and fed and healed by him and sent out to tell others about Jesus, wherever, wherever these gatherings are, these are, these are outposts of the, heaven, of the kingdom of heaven. That, that's one way to think of the church. We exist, as one theologian has put it, uh, for the life of the world. Now, all of this uh, ties into the image of the kingdom as leaven in bread. Leaven here uh, is a good thing. In Jesus' time, uh, it was most likely a piece of fermented dough that was kept and, and mixed into new batches, which would cause the bread to expand and rise. Um, like tiny pieces of yeast that get mixed into dough or like a sourdough starter that we mix into bread when we're baking. Um, the kingdom of heaven is not detached from the world that we are in, but it seems to be mixed in. The, if the church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, um, that means that we're to be mixed into the world, not detached from it, but pointing it to Jesus, who brings about transformation and growth. So as the kingdom grows um, from small beginnings, like a mustard seed, to include all peoples, um, all ethnicities, the kingdom is like leaven, which transforms from the inside and encourages growth. We're drawn into this expansive transformative kingdom by following Jesus. And we need to be transformed. Our focus, our aim in life needs to be transformed our desire for control, our sexuality, our relationships, what we value. All these need to be transformed. And our cultures need to be transformed too, our, our ethnicities, the, the distinctive things that make up those aspects of our identity, they're not exempt from this transformation. Jesus brings life and healing to all of us individually and to all of us relationally, no matter where we're from. 
Now, maybe that all sounds good to you, um, or, or maybe you're not, not quite sure about all this. Uh, maybe the question on your heart is, uh, well, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Right? All this transformation and stuff uh, sounds good, maybe, uh, but, but it also sounds like hard work. And it seems to be pretty time-consuming. A tree growing, um, or even waiting for dough to rise, well, that takes time. Yeah, it does. It takes lots of time. And, and I think there, there's many things that are characteristics of our culture today that stand in marked contrast to the way the kingdom of heaven functions. I've kind of, I've kind of alluded to a few characteristics of our culture already. Um, our, our desire to control things, to shape things, to, 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 to be the one calling the shots. Um, and also there's, there's like our, our quest for efficiency. The kingdom of heaven uh, doesn't seem to be all that efficient, does it? How often do we miss out on what God wants to do in our lives because it's taking too long? But it's the two parables in the middle of our reading that draw out um, maybe a reason to let go of efficiency and even control and to surrender to Jesus' call to follow him in this new kingdom of heaven reality. Verses 44 and 45 of Matthew 13. The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here Jesus points us to the immense value of the kingdom of heaven. In one instance, it's like a treasure that is stumbled upon in a field. In the other, there is a search going on for fine pearls. In both instances, the value of what is discovered is so immense that it is worth it to sell all that one has to get it. What we're being pointed toward is that what we treasure focuses our hearts. It shapes what we do with our time and with our money, and it directs our lives. But focus uh, is not a strength of our culture today. Um, we tend to either focus on the wrong thing or we lack focus altogether. Every now and then, uh, I pick up a copy of uh, T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets that my wife has on our bookshelf. Uh, T.S. Eliot is considered to be one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. And the Four Quartets is considered to be uh, like one of his, his best works. Uh, and in the first of these four quartets, uh, called Burnt Norton, uh, which is, it's kind of a reflection on the nature of time and the nature of humanity. Eliot has a couple of lines that have stuck with me over the years, and I keep going back to. One, one line in particular is this. Distracted from distraction by distraction. And this was first published in 1936, but it feels like a pretty good description of our world today, doesn't it? If people were distracted back in 1936, it kind of feels like we've perfected the art of distraction today. You know, most people walk around with a cell phone that has incessant notifications. Um, all news is breaking news. 
Uh, we're constantly being plied by advertisements for destination vacations or, or the next great experience. We're bombarded with more information online um, than we can actually process. And I have more books in my living room than an entire village would have had 500 years ago. And I don't have a lot of books compared with some people. Um, but earlier, earlier uh, going back to T.S. Eliot in, in Burnt Norton, um, he describes uh, what perhaps is the reason for our distractions. Um, he says, humankind cannot bear much reality. In our brokenness, we often run towards whatever feels good, whatever fills the void of purpose we fear, whatever numbs the pain that we feel, and we'll latch onto those things. We'll get lost in nostalgia over the past or be consumed with some sort of life goal, whether that be work or leisure. We often grow to treasure things that are fleeting. They don't last. And the last thing we will do is acknowledge the reality of the kingdom of heaven that is present to us now in Jesus. What we treasure focuses our hearts. That drives our lives. At the center of the kingdom is Jesus. And if we aim for trying to bring about peace on our own, if we reduce Christianity to abstract ideas or ideals, we're treasuring the wrong thing. If we're about immediate results or efficiency, we'll be disappointed. But Jesus is the greatest treasure. He is the center of the kingdom of heaven. He is the way into it, and following him is the way that we grow in it. Jesus is the one who brings restoration and the one who makes all things new. And that includes me and you. So as I come to an end, I want to just encourage us. Focus on Jesus. Take the time to do that. Sometimes there, there's a lot of things that will crowd out looking to Jesus, focusing on who he is, what he's calling us to do. But when we take the time to do it, um, that's when Jesus transforms our lives. That's when he transforms our relationships. He transforms the world around us and that we, together, reflect the kingdom of heaven, um, what it will be in its fullness. So let's take time to look at Jesus. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.